بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا رسول الله وسبحان الله العلي العظيم أؤمن به وأستعينه وأستهديه وأستجيره وأستنصره فإنه حقا منهد الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونصلي ونسلم ونبارك على محمد خاتم النبيين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين We are in the blessed month of Zul Hijjah the month honored in the Islamic tradition noted by the Prophet in so many hadith a month in which the shedding of blood is strictly prohibited, especially prohibited, and a month in which good deeds are rewarded many folds, and in which Muslims are exhorted to avoid sin and wrongdoing with an especial zeal and energy and to do good in every possible way. Of course, the month of Dhul Hijjah has a special status because it is the month of the pilgrimage of Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. I want to bring attention to two things that might seem unrelated, but in fact they are. Like a lot of things in our world, our world is increasingly small and interconnected. But in this month, because it's an especially blessed and holy month, we cannot forget 
those who cannot share whatever good Muslims must be might be able to engage in. I'll explain in a second. First, there is a reality that has crept into existence and has become a fact in Mecca, a reality that is directly experienced by those who visit Mecca in these days. Of course, we are under the circumstance the, of the coronavirus and the pandemic, and Hajj this year has been limited and restricted. Unlike other years, there are not going to be millions visiting Mecca. But the reality that I speak of is the commercialization of Mecca. The last time I visited Mecca, which was in the 80s, early 80s, no, actually, I visited Mecca in the, in the 90s, I forgot. I visited Mecca in the 80s and in the 90s. You could still get a sense of the historical feel of Mecca. It was still a fact that for the most part, even in the 90s, early 90s, the tallest building in Mecca was the Kaaba. And you couldn't tell the wealthy from the poor in terms of visitors to the Kaaba and those in Umrah or in Hajj for the most part, there were a lot of hotels and other accommodations around the Kaaba that were affordable. Um, in order to abstain luxury accommodations, you pretty much had to seek them out. You had to know where to go and you had to pay to go to those places where you could find luxury accommodations. And I could tell you that at the time, those who were known to stay in luxury accommodations in Mecca were looked at with a certain amount of lack of respect as people who are cheating God and people who are doing what Hajj and Umrah and the entire Muslim experience in the Kaaba 
is designed to do, and that is to remove the differences between rich and poor and between the classes, between the races, even between the genders. Mecca, with a thorough experience in egalitarianism, if it hadn't been for the fact that in the 80s and the 90s, you could tell that there were people who have come from different parts in the world were living as undocumented aliens, basically, or in an illegal status around Mecca, and you could tell that uh, these people were destitute. If it hadn't been for that fact, it was very difficult to tell the difference between rich and poor around the Kaaba, and still Mecca retained a lot of the character that it was supposed to embody. A place in which you cannot tell rich from poor, you cannot differentiate between black and white, in which all human status, all status that is a result of human customs and human laws evaporates before the eyes of Allah. Through the centuries, the principle of Mecca is that you couldn't differentiate between a free man and a man who is a slave between a person from a powerful tribe and a weak tribe, between genders, or any other distinctions and differences. The most notable thing that I remember from the visit in the from the visits in the eighties and nineties was the rather notorious example of the palace built for the king overlooking Mecca at a certain location. The reality in Mecca now is very different. Mecca now is plagued by high-rises, Western commercial labels, In fact, the entire architect of, architecture of Mecca has been designed to accommodate the wealthy. So that if you are wealthy, you stay in a hotel overlooking the Kaaba. Because the Kaaba now is surrounded by buildings that are high rises in which you can stay in a hotel room. If you pay the extra money, the hotel room will be facing the Kaaba and you can overlook the Kaaba in very expensive accommodations. If you're poor, then you can find accommodations that are further away from the Kaaba 
because clearly the city is no longer designed to accommodate you or welcome you. Some of us might not want and might resist drawing a connection between the pandemic and other things that had transpired in recent months and recent years in Mecca. And the assaults and insults that has been inflicted against the holy city especially in the last five years or so, or in the last decade at least. The second thing, though, that we must remember in this month is that in the day and age we are living in, there is a tragedy and immoral insult and immoral affliction being perpetuated that is as harrowing as what we've witnessed during World War II against so many indigent people and also against, or perhaps particularly against Jews in the Holocaust. Here is an article from the Daily Mail titled, A Naked Brutality Worthy of the Nazis. The harrowing evidence of Beijing's concentration camps dedicated to re-educating a million or more Muslims. The real number of Muslims in concentration camps in China are not known. The estimates run from one million to several million. I'm actually going to do the unusual thing of reading from this article because I couldn't articulate what it has to say in my own words better. Dawn breaks in the crowded prison cell. Not everyone is asleep. Conditions are so cramped in the 70 square yard space that 15 of the 60 inmates have to stand to give others their turn to lie, to lie down. The lack of privacy is absolute. Toilet breaks are rationed, two minutes at a time, and in full gaze of the others. Glass walls, cameras, and microphones mean that every word and deed is recorded. Informants placed in each cell even note down what people say in their sleep and pass it on to the guards. As with every other day, the morning begin the morning begins with compulsory singing of Communist Party songs praising the glorious motherland and its wise leader, the leader of China. 
Then their only meal of the day arrives. Watery cabbage soup served with a small lump of steamed dough. If they're lucky, they may get a few grains of rice as well. And then the medication arrives in the form of a white pill. To be sure they've taken it, the prisoners' mouths are roughly forced open and searched. The mysterious drug, a tranquilizer of some sort, soon induces a state of miserable mental numbness. Thoughts and memories of life outside, the fate of loved ones, the, pains, the pain of shattered hopes, all recede. Now the only aim is to get through the day. Such, such a scene is being played out in any one of China's secret concentration camps, concentration camps dedicated to re-educating a million or more of the country's Muslim Uyghur population in a network of hundreds of institutions built across 640,000 square miles of Western China, an area seven times the size of Britain. Every detail of this harrowing description of life inside the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, its native Uyghurs call it East Turkestan, comes from accounts that have trickled out of the region and from a huge package of internal Communist Party documents leaked last year by a brave official disgusted by the policies he was implementing. They are confirmed by survivor testimony collated by Rahima Mahmoud of the London office of the World Uyghur Congress and by Human Rights Watch, a New York-based campaign group. Internet detectives have also used publicly available satellite images to plot the growth of the camps. On Sunday, Beijing's UK ambassador was quizzed by Andrew Marr about drone footage taken in 2018 showing hundreds of Uyghur, Muslim, Uyghur men kneeling, shaven-headed, shackled, and blindfolded, being led from a train in what appeared to be a transfer of prisoners. After a lengthy pause, an embarrassed pause, the ambassador responded with bluster and denial. Uyghur people enjoy peaceful, harmonious coexistence with other ethnic groups of people. He insisted, dismissing the footage as so-called Western intelligence. Certainly nothing peaceful or harmonious marks the inmates' daily routine. Morning is indoctrination. Inmates, hundreds of them, all shaven-headed, sit in a vast echoing room listening to hours of lectures on the evils of religion. The instructor's words are broken by rhythmic chanting of Communist Party slogans. All communication is in Chinese, for the inmates to mutter even a word in their own ancient language, a dialect similar to Uzbek, would be a sign of defiance and bring terrifying retribution. 
The monotony of the lessons is mental torture. At the end of the class, inmates are asked, is there a God? The only permitted answer is no. Every waking moment is an onslaught on their cherished beliefs and traditions. The half-starved inmates are even forced to eat pork and drink alcohol in defiance of their Muslim faith. Afternoon brings interrogations. To break their mental resistance, inmates are forced to watch each other being tortured before their own sessions of questioning. They are made to denounce friends and family, to confess to fictitious crimes such as bomb-making and espionage, and to express abject contrition, even for such harmless acts as having a copy of the Qur'an. Any resistance brings beatings, electric shocks, and sleep deprivation. Nakedness is another dehumanizing tactic. Nudity is taboo in Islam, but prisoners of all ages are made to parade before each other and in view of the guards. For women, humiliating gynecolog gynecological inspections are mandatory. Rape is routine. The prettier Muslim women disappear at night and weep silently during the day. An injection every 15 days appears to be forced contraception. Monthly periods cease. Worst of all is the dreaded orange tabard. Prisoners assigned these soon disappear, never to be seen again. Rumor has it that they are murdered for their organs, kidneys, Coroneas, hearts, and livers are looted from their bodies to fund the lucrative international black market or serve the needs of the Communist Party elite. For the 9 million other Uyghurs living in western Chinese province who are lucky enough not to be confined in such camps, life is another kind of prison. Every moment is under video camera surveillance backed up by intrusive searches. Police vans patrol the streets searching for any sign of suspicious behavior and mounting random checks. Checkpoints are at every 200 yards. Worse are the ubiquitous plainclothes police silently observing public behavior. A single careless word or deed, perhaps a small show of faith, is punishable by incarceration and brainwashing. Little words, little word leaks out of the fate of those who are taken away. Their families are sometimes told that they died in traffic accidents. Those who return are so traumatized that they rarely speak of their ordeal. Possession of any books, newspapers, or any electronic material could be, or electronic material that could signal disloyalty to the Chinese God regime is punished, like the Quran. No expression of religious belief is permitted. Mosques are empty shells with worship staged only to deceive outsiders. 
Even a Quran or a prayer mat is a dangerous sign of disloyalty. The micromanagement extends to household possessions. Kitchen knives with blades longer than four inches, for example, must be engraved with a barcode identifying the owner and must be chained to a wall or table. Children are used as informers against their families. School classes are shown Arabic script and asked if they recognize that script. If they, those who unwittingly, those who unwittingly recognize it, or sorry, those who recognize it have unwittingly highlighted their families are believers who read the Quran, which results in the kidnapping of their family and their disappearance. The article goes on and on to document atrocity after atrocity. And in fact, we even come to this The fate of women, the fate of women left at home when their menfolk are sent to camps is particularly horrific. The men are sent to work camps and the women left behind. This is what happens to them. They are assigned a Chinese official to live in their home to monitor the family. These officials intrude into every aspect of domestic life and often insist on occupying the empty place in the marital bed. Such grotesque abuses of human rights have been underway for years, but they have leaped into public view with the West view in the West thanks to dogged work by investigators and the bravery of those who have fled. One fortunate, only recently, one fortunate escapee name said, perhaps it is becoming even worse than the Nazis because they can combine the latest technology such as 24 surveillance, every 24 hour surveillance everywhere with the most primitive methods of torture. The article goes on and on. Muslims living in concentration camps, being killed, harvested for their organs, women, and sometimes even men, men raped systematically and regularly. Men who are not in concentration camps are forced to go work in work camps, those in concentration camps already work in labor camps. And with the men absent, the women are forced to have sex with communist party officials. This happens not just Uyghur Muslims. 
but to all types of ethnic Muslim minorities in China. And it's been happening for years, and it's been happening now. Needless to say, no Muslims from China are allowed to perform Hajj. When I was in Mecca, in my 80s visit, one of the things that I remember very distinctly is meeting Muslims from China in Mecca. It's a long story, but I remember the Quran being beautifully recited by the leader of their group. And I was so amazed by it because he didn't understand Arabic, but he recited the Quran beautifully. There are no Muslims visiting Mecca. And Muslims live in Holocaust-like circumstances today. There's several points that I want to make here. And all of them are related and interconnected. No ifs, ands about it. We must clearly understand the direct responsibility of Islamophobia and Islamophobes for the escalation in human rights violations against Muslims around the globe. The responsibility is direct and non-negotiable. Let us all remember that before 9-11, Influential academics in the United States and in Britain, which carry the beacon of human rights around the world, proposed the clash of civilization thesis, a thesis which ultimately, whether intentionally or not, deprecated and degraded Muslims. Let us all remember that at the time the Bosnia genocide was going on, academics like Bernard Lewis wrote of the irreconcilable differences between Islam and Muslims and modernity. And let us all remember that after 9-11, Bernard Lewis wrote what went wrong, tarnishing the entire Muslim population around the world as flawed and defective and dangerous unless they reform and change. 
But let us all remember that it was Islamophobes that tore down the wall of civility that restrained racists and bigots in their animosity and hostility towards Muslims. Islamophobes taught that Muslims are a dangerous people. They are a dangerous people if they believe in their Quran and if they follow the Prophet because the Quran itself is a dangerous book and the Prophet himself was a dangerous man. And let us all remember that in response to 9-11, we in the U.S. perpetuated a genocide in Afghanistan and Iraq, a genocide in which we refused to bear any responsibility or accountability for. Till now, we refuse to be accountable for the number of people killed innocently or to even account for the number of killed or wounded or displaced or to even discuss what were all these wars about and what were the results of these wars. But after 9-11 and after our war and after the explosion of Islamophobia on the scene, we had the Bosnian genocide followed by the Rohingya, the genocide in Burma, the persecution of Muslims in Kashmir, the obliteration of Muslims in Chechnya, and of course, what developed in China. And the thing we notice about one genocide after another is the language of the persecutors is practically indistinguishable from the language that the, that the Nazis used against the Germans in World War II. And it is also indistinguishable from the language of Islamophobes like Daniel Pipes and Robert Spencer in the United States and Britain and France and elsewhere. It is clear that Muslims are persecuted because of the same thought paradigms that spread like an evil plague in the minds of racists and bigots around the world. We cannot forget that it is Islamophobes 
and the Islamophobia industry that is directly responsible for genocides against Muslims around the world and for the hell and evil that is taking place in China today. The second point is we cannot forget that Islamophobia didn't just infect the communist Chinese or the fascist government in Burma or the fascist government in India, but it even infected the minds of Muslims themselves so that we see the Emirati government talking about political Islam as if it is fascist Islam. And hearing the president of a major Muslim country like Egypt talk about 1.6 billion Muslims being a burden upon the world and a threat to the world. This is Sisi of Egypt. Making the assumption that unless Islam is reformed, then the 1.6 billion Muslims are a threat to the world population. It is because of the effect and impact of Islamophobia that Muslims or a major contributing factor, let me revise that, that Muslims, even those Muslims who would otherwise do something about the, the genocide in China or the plight of Kashmiri Muslims or the Rohingyas, now are afraid to do anything because they are afraid of supporting political Islam in any way, even if by mistaken, unintentionally, and indirectly. You go to speak to Muslims everywhere. And what they worry about with all the atrocious human rights facts that you confront them with is, well, but what if they're a separatist movement? Well, what if we are supporting the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, what if our support to the Muslims in China is taken as support for the political Islam? Well, I mean, all of these mental handicaps that directly come from the books of Islamophobes and the manifestos of Islamophobia. Islamophobia have played the Muslim mind. My third point.
Islamophobes are directly responsible. Islamophobia has penetrated the Muslim heart and soul. We have become racist against ourselves. We have become bigots, self-hating bigots. But third, don't believe for a second that Allah will bless a people who can witness their brothers and sisters suffer and go on with life as if nothing matters. Don't believe for a second that Allah will answer a single Muslim prayer as long as Muslims can see what is happening to their brothers and sisters from Kashmir to the Rohingyas to the Palestinians to the Uyghur Muslims and the Kazakhs Muslims because it's not just the Uyghur Muslims, all Muslims now in China. And go on with their lives Worrying about things like whether their wudu is correct, whether their salah is correct, whether their hijab is correct. If the Prophet taught that Muslims are as if a single body, what do you say about a people? who walk around with their arms rotting and their legs rotting and they go on shattering as if they haven't noticed. We call these people insane. Imagine if, as the Prophet said, Muslims are a single party. If this Muslim body has rotting arms and rotting legs. And it goes on oblivious to the rot. Talking about things that have to do with everything except what, what afflicts it and what plagues it. Do you think God is going to respond or look at those people? I cannot fail to notice that most, most of what we know about the plight of Chinese Muslims comes because of the efforts of non-Muslims. Comes because of the efforts of non-Muslims who are committed to human rights. And that's obscene. But what is even more obscene is the fact that Muslims in Kashmir, Muslims in Burma, Muslims in China have been betrayed by the vast majority of Muslims in the world. 
we are all aware of how Muslim countries supported the Chinese government's policies and their concentration or quote-unquote re-education camps. Do you think Allah will accept the Hajj of a people that went to the persecutor, to the Nazi in China and said, God bless you. We're fine with what you're doing. And do you think it is possible? Is it possible that it is because of that that Allah sent the pandemic to inflict the Hajj of this year and cripple it? My fourth point. The Mecca of today, the Mecca of high rises with Western commercial labels, Hilton, Hilton, Sheraton, Sheraton, whatever, all the Western labels. The Mecca, where you go to Hajj or Umrah, you stay in a luxury hotel room with your window overlooking the Kaaba. That Mecca, the Mecca that is more like a Las Vegas Mecca, without the gambling, at least overtly and legally, is not a Mecca that could have possibly stood against the Chinese government or resisted the Chinese government or condemned the Chinese government for what it's doing to Muslims. Including, and again, I emphasize, the systematic and consistent rape of Muslim women in China, day in and day out. Why? Because it's a commercial Mecca. Because it is like the, it has become like Abu Dhabi and like Dubai and like Cairo, a city organized around the god of the dollar. These cities don't worship Allah. These cities worship the dollar. And the Mecca of today doesn't worship Allah. It is, after all, it is the Hilton and the Sheraton that towers over the Kaaba, not the Kaaba that towers over the Hilton and Sheraton. It is a very clear message that what we care about is the bottom line, and that's the dollar. And we are not going to do anything that endangers or risks our business with China even if it sacrifices millions of Muslims. We care about fighting Muslims in Yemen, we care about fighting Muslims in Libya, but we don't care about the plight of Palestinians in Palestine, we don't care about the plight of Muslims in Kashmir, 
We don't care about the plight of Muslims in China. Leave alone the plight of Muslims before that in Cyprus and in other areas of the world. We cannot simply assume that this is another Dhul Hijjah just like any other was blissful ignorance. We cannot. It is not. My not final point about this. There is a major effort, sadly, undertaken largely by non-Muslims, of ostracizing, shaming, and boycotting companies that do business with Chinese companies that use Muslim forced labor. Muslims are used like cattle. Except you wouldn't cheat animals that way. To, pre, to make products. And unfortunately, a lot of companies do business with Chinese companies that use Muslim forced labor. Why? Because it maximizes their profits. And there's a major effort to shame these companies and to boycott and stop doing business with these companies until they stop doing business with Chinese companies that use Muslim forced labor. This is the least we can do. Sadly, no Muslim country is spearheading this effort or even seems to care about this effort. But this is an effort that must be pioneered by Muslims in the West. Already, there are several organizations that are very active in this field. And inshallah, when we post this khutbah, I will ask the folks here to post the addresses or the contact information for these organizations. Organizations like the Uyghur Human Rights Project in Washington, D.C., the Workers' Rights Consortium in D.C., the Anti-Slavery International Movement in London, the Clean Clothes Campaign from Hong Kong, the Global Labor Justice Move, uh, Organization or Forum, These organizations need our support and need our active engagement because the list of businesses that profit from the misery of Muslims is shocking and horrendous. Here's a partial list of companies that profit from the enslavement of Muslims, the torture of Muslims, 
and the rape of Muslims. Abercrombie and Fitch, Adidas, Amazon, Badger Sport, CNA, Kofra Holding, whatever, Calvin Klein, Carter's, Ceruti 1881, Costco, Cotton On, Dangerfield, Esprit, Fita, Gap, H&M, Hart, Schaffner, Marks, Ikea, Jack and Jones, Jeans, Jean Sweat, LLB, Lacoste, Li Ning, Marks and Spencer, Mayer, Muhi, Nike, Patagonia, Polo Ralph Lauren, Puma, Skechers, Summit Resource International, Target Australia, Tommy Hilfiger, Onkyo, Victoria's Secrets, Woolworth, Zara, Xena. Companies that do business with companies that use Muslim forced labor and that keep the economies of the concentration camps in China going. I am embarrassed every time I raise my hands to Allah and pray because I know that at the same time that I eat and do whatever I do and watch my family do whatever it does, there are Muslim families that live on a bowl of cabbage soup and women who are raped regularly every single night just because they have a copy of the Quran or they dare say what we say so leisurely, Ashhadu Anna La ilaha illallah Anna Muhammad Rasulullah. And because I know that the Muslim capitals of today have betrayed the Muslim cause because the intellects and hearts of Muslim leaders. Don't kid yourself, the intellects and hearts of Muslim leaders around the world have been infected with Islamophobia and Islamophobic assumptions and Islamophobic arguments and Islamophobic attitudes. I tell you who are the people who are going to be the most accountable in the hereafter. The people who are going to wish that they were in a different state and a different circumstance and a different condition in the hereafter. It is wealthy Muslims. Every Muslim who Allah gave a lot of money to who built a castle, bought expensive cars, bought homes in Beverly Hills or wherever, Malibu, in the final day when Allah asks you, 
You spent handsomely on yourself. What did you do about these Muslims? And at that point, when you have no answer, you fill in the blank. The wise person is a person who lives an entirely reflective life, an introspective life, a life in which they learn to hold themselves accountable before they are held to account in the hereafter. One of the stories that has stayed with me that I read in Kitab At-Tawabin by Ibn Qudama is a story that he recounts about the great Muslim scholar and successor, Malik bin Dinar. Malik bin Dinar is known to us in history as one of the early generations after the companions of the Prophet who was a scholar of Hadith, but also was a man of great piety. He was among the people who, at a time when literacy was limited and those who could read and write were, were not that many, Malik bin Dinar was known for copying the Quran. This was, in fact, in later part of his life, his major profession is that he was a Quran copyist. But this is not how Malik bin Dinar started out his life. Although born in a good Muslim family, Malik bin Dinar, when he was a young man, went to work for the government of the time and worked as a soldier in the Khalifa's army in this, uh, this was the first Islamic century because Malik bin Dinar dies around 130 something, Hijra. Anyway, as a soldier, 
Malik bin Dinar learned to engage in the mother of evils, and that is drinking alcohol. And the more he drank, the more he sinned. And the more he sinned, the more he hated himself. And the more he hated himself, the more injustice he committed against innocent people. As a soldier, he was able to cuss out people, to curse people, to beat people, and to keep on drinking and escape the pangs of his conscience through the intoxication of alcohol. Anyway, eventually, Malik bin Dinar marries a slave girl, which brings him a child called Fatima. And Malik bin Dinar grew very fond of his daughter, Fatima, and he noticed that when she was two years old, that when he would drink alcohol, she would come and push the glass away from him, away from his face. And as he watched her, he started growing closer to Allah. And as he noticed that she doesn't like it when he drinks, he started to avoid drinking. And she became the light of his life. Playing with Fatima was the joy of his life, so much so that he quit his job as a soldier with the army or a policeman with the government and started praying again and started trying to revise and reform himself. When Fatima was about three years old, or actually towards the end of her, I mean, halfway through three years old, Fatima suddenly got sick and died. And Malik bin Dinar was crushed by the death of his daughter. But like a lot of people in this situation, Malik bin Dinar was angry. Here is the girl that finally started getting him to change his behavior and his conduct to come back to Allah, and she dies. Malik bin Dinar then became very angry and very upset, very despondent, and he went back to committing sins much worse than he was before he got married and before the birth of his daughter. In fact, according to Malik bin Dinar's narrative, that he went back to drinking like he never drank before, and to doing everything haram, leave alone things like praying or fasting, and so on. One night, after a heavy session of drinking, consuming alcohol, and being drunk, 
he passes out and he has the following dream. He dreams that the skies are dissolving and the ground is cracking and breaking up. And lo and behold, he finds himself, he knows that it is the final day and he hears names being called by a roaring voice. And as people go up to that voice, he sees their faces darken and blacken. And he is terrified in the nightmare of hearing his name being called. But then he hears his name being called and he starts trembling and he notices that his face is blacking, is darkening and becoming black. At the moment that he starts approaching the source of the, the voice, he suddenly sees a big, terrifying creature looking like a massive snake lunging towards him. Terrified, he starts running. But wherever he runs, that monster, snake-like monster, is after him. Can't find refuge anywhere. He rushes towards a mountain and going in the passageways of this mountain, he comes upon an area where he finds an old frail man, a frail old man sitting. And Malik bin Dinar then yells at the man, save me, the monster is, behind, is after me. The man says, I am an old, weak, an weak old man. I can't do anything to help you. But go this way, maybe you can escape. Anyway, Malik bin Dinar goes the direction the old man said, and the monster is still after him. Suddenly, in this nightmare, Malik sees an area where there are the faces, the luminous faces of many little young children. One of those faces that approaches him is the face of his little dead girl, Fatima. Fatima takes his right hand and the minute he, she grabs his right hand, he feels an enormous amount of relief. And with her left hand, she pushes off the monster, making the monster run the opposite direction. And of course, Malik bin Dinar is shocked and surprised and relieved to see his dead daughter. And his dead daughter says, don't worry, father, you're safe. 
and he says, did you see this monster chasing after me, the snake? And she says, yes, I know about that monster. Father, this monster is the embodiment of your evil deeds on earth. It is as if all your evil deeds, the what we would call the energy from your evil deeds, came together and created this monster. And the old man you met on the way here, the man who couldn't help you, that was the embodiment of your good deeds. If that if your good deeds were more enormous, more significant, that old man would have become a young, strong man who could have saved you from the embodiment of your evil deeds. But your good deeds are weak and insignificant. And so they became this weak, frail old man who couldn't help you while your bad deeds are so significant that they became this monstrous snake that is bound to consume you and destroy you. And then his daughter told him, recited the Quranic verse from Surah Al-Hadid, أَلَمْ يَأْنِي الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا أَن تَخْشَعَ قُلُوبُهُمْ لِذِكْرِ اللَّهِ isn't it time for those who have sinned, those who have gone astray? Sorry, isn't it time for those who say they believe for their hearts to submit and repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? At that point, Malik bin Dinar wakes up from his dream, drenched in sweat, terrified by the scenes of hell he's seen, and at the same time relieved that he had a three-year-old daughter that died to save him from his fate. So he watches up and he goes to pray Fajr at mosque and at the mosque. And at that Fajr prayer, the Imam recites, Isn't it time for those who say they believe that their hearts submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And Malik bin Dinar realized that Allah is speaking to him through the nightmare and he started weeping. And from that day on, Malik bin Dinar became on his path to be a man remembered in Islamic history for his piety. He became literally a beacon of piety.
My point, my point is it is never too late to change the course of our behavior. It is never too late to repent, not just as individuals, but as a people, as a nation. It is never too late to say, Allah, we've noticed the errors of our ways and we will change. As long as you are alive and Allah hasn't taken your soul, don't worry about whether what you will do will be effective or not effective. That's Allah's business. But do what is right. Do what Allah expects you to do. Live a morally upright life and leave the rest and the consequences and the results to Allah. Before you meet Allah and you are chased either by your own demons or you're blessed by your own deeds. Allahumma anna. اللهم اغفر لنا اللهم ارحمنا يا علي عظيم اللهم اعز الاسلام اللهم انصر الاسلام واعز المسلمين يا رب العالمين الله forgive our sins grant us to the best guide us to the best guidance يا رب العالمين grant us your light and forgiveness and your blessings grant us wisdom to reverse the course of our lives and make these lives more beautiful and more devout and more holy. Ya Ali Ya Azim. Wa salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa ta'ala bi ihsanin ila yawm al-deen wa aqam as-salah.